Great. We're in a series this autumn all about encounter with God. And what we're going to do is carry on going through different Old Testament characters and their encounters with God. Today, we're looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah meeting God under the trees at Mamre. Uh, There are a couple of keys in this passage that will help us to understand why other cultures around the world seem to see more of God than we do in the West. I don't know whether sometimes you get a little bit tired of hearing how brilliant it is that the church is growing so fast in Nepal or China or East Africa or wherever else it is that we're not. There's a couple of things in this passage that will help us see why people are experiencing God there more than they are here, as well as a reminder of what happens when we're in God's presence. So I'm going to read Genesis 18 and just the first 15 verses. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you may be refreshed and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. And just as a a footnote, that's a lot of flour. You may have a footnote that says this is probably about 39 pints. That's what my, that's that's a lot of bread. It's not a small amount. Then, He ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. Actually, elsewhere in these chapters, it tells us that Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. And even allowing for the fact that in Uh, Genesis, people often lived much longer than we do now. These are still advanced years. But just to make it clear, it says, verse 11, Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, will I really 
have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did. Just as an introductory thing here, one of the things that is sometimes said about this passage is that this is a revelation in the Old Testament of the Trinity, and that the three is about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, out on a day trip to see Abraham together. Uh, Actually, later on in the chapter, in, in verse 22, it talks about two men leaving and going down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord remaining with Abraham and talking with him about what's about to happen. And uh, it's probably not the three persons of the Trinity or making an appearance here. Uh, It's what theologians technically call a theophany. A theophany literally means a revelation of God. And theophanies, revelations of God, happen uh, in all kinds of different ways in the Old Testament. But God doesn't just show up in all of his blazing glory, unapproachable light that would destroy anyone that came near, but makes himself known through something else, whether that's a burning bush or a storm. God makes himself known through different things and sometimes makes himself known through a human form. Most often when God makes himself known, the phrase that we read is that an angel of the Lord appeared and it's It's a phrase that describes God making himself known, as it were, through an angel that looks often in human form. So what's happening most likely here, we can't say for absolute certain, but that one of these three figures is a revelation of God, a a theophany, uh, is the Lord himself. He's the one that hangs around with Abraham when the other two go away. And the, the other two were angels. What it does show, for sure, whether it's Trinity or the Lord accompanied by a couple of his servants, is that God is relational. Yeah. That when he decided it was time to visit Abraham, it seemed good to him to bring some others with him. I know Many centuries later, when Jesus came and sent his disciples out, he sent them out in twos. He wasn't interested in individuals going out alone. But, you know, the minimum size of any, the minimum team size for any kingdom endeavor is two. And, and here it's three. Okay, so let's not worry too much about exactly who all of these people are. Uh, but acknowledge that God likes to work with others. And it was certainly God himself who turned up with Abraham today. First thing I'd like to draw our attention to in the first few verses is the way in which Abraham hurried. It says that Abraham hurried to them, and he also got things moving in his household. He went and had a word with Sarah, could you do this? Spoke to his servant, and the servant hurried, it says. Uh, These strangers had not made an appointment. They just appeared out of nowhere. Now, Abraham was a wealthy man. He had many livestock, which was the main measure of wealth at that time, and with that, many servants, 
And with all of that responsibility, he had many cares, many things with which he could be occupied. He had plenty of reason to be busy. But when he saw these three figures, his plans for the day were altered. He, he didn't know, the passage doesn't tell us whether, whether he knew that this was someone special, that this was maybe even the Lord. Uh, There's no indication that Abraham is doing anything other than seeing three men and responding to them in a certain way. So what we can't say is that Abraham had some special ability to spot angels. It does seem that there are some people in Christendom that do have a special ability to spot angels, uh, judged by the fact that some people report seeing angels much more often than others. That would be a great gift to have. Uh, it's It's not one that I have had myself. My favorite story, this is a slight diversion, my favorite story of um, uh, someone seeing an angel in recent years was um, in our church on Blackbird Lees. Someone looked out of his window and saw a family member's house and was being praying for them and saw um, not someone in white with wings, but someone in a bright white hoodie guarding the house and thought, oh, that's a bit surprising, but I'm glad that's there. And then looked and saw from the height of this person that he must be about 10 feet tall and thought, oh, that must be an angel. Went back to sleep. So, I mean, some people have those kinds of experiences. This passage is not about how do we get to spot angels because it's not obvious that Abraham knew anything other than that these were just people passing by. What it really does show us is Abraham's attitude and a lifestyle in which he made room for other people. The hurry that he had was not to get on with his list of things already planned to do. He was hurrying to respond to people who came to him. Now, in our society, most of us are busy about many things. For all of our technology that makes us more productive means that our list of things to do don't just have to be on bits of paper, but can be on devices that bleep at us when it's time to do them. Uh, What many of us have experienced is that we just get more done rather than having any time left over. Just... I remember some years ago when we were still worshipping in the other hall that there is here at the King's Centre before this one was refurbished. Um, A man that we had on our church staff then, Gitao Gakwo from uh, Nairobi, was preaching and he told a story which some of you may have heard. It's a story of an African fisherman lying, resting in the afternoon, having spent the morning fishing, caught enough fish for his family, day's work done, lying at rest for the afternoon. And a Westerner, a European, comes along and says, what are you doing lying down? The man says, I finished my day's work. The European says, yeah, but if you went back out to work and did like a whole day's work, then you'd catch more fish. And the man says, well, what would I want to do that for? And he said, well, if you had some more fish, then you'd have some to spare and you could sell them and you'd have some money. He said, well, what do I... What do I want that for? He said, well, you could buy a bigger boat, and with a bigger boat, you could catch more fish. And he said, well, what would I want to do that for? He said, well, if you had a bigger boat, and you catch more fish, you could get a couple of boats, and then you could employ other people to work the boats, and then you'd be able to take the afternoon off. <laughs> and I remember hearing Gitao tell that story, and if I'm honest, 
my reaction was, oh, I thought there's something wrong in this story somewhere. Because it implies that there's no purpose to work. And I know that in the creation order, God gave Adam work to do in the garden. And it felt like a bit of a kind of anti-work story. So I was like... And having reflected on it, I eventually worked out what bothered me about it, which is that the difference between that I only work the mornings ever and I rest in the afternoon and I supervise my people in the morning and have the afternoon. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, another difference between those two scenarios. In this one, he's not only provided... In this one, he's provided for his family. In this one, he's provided for a whole range of families and served a whole bunch of other people. So then I spent some years thinking, well, there we are then. That's right. We should, Europe is right. And we should work really hard and bless other people through it. But there's another difference between these different scenarios, which is that the man on the beach resting in the afternoon has got time for the conversation with the guy from Europe who walks by. This European in the story, I don't know where he's come from, but he's got time to have this conversation with him. He's got time to respond. Uh, A few years ago, Bev and I were hosting a training evening for leaders in our home. And many of you have been to our home, and you know that you come through the front door, and there's the stairs straight away. There's no hallway, and straight away, there's our room with sofas just, just kind of there. You can step, and there's sofas there. And so um, we had just about got eight or ten people gathered, and we were If I remember rightly, someone might correct me, but I think we were supposed to be talking about evangelistic strategy that evening. That's what I think it was. Anyway, a couple of weeks before, I had been praying and asking God what he would have me do, and he reminded me that one of the partner of one of our neighbors is really into human rights issues in Zimbabwe. And as it happened, St. Aldate's at that time was showing a film about some issues of justice and human rights in Zimbabwe, so I took that as a prompt. I went over, had a conversation with this guy. It turned out to be a conversation not only about the rights and wrongs of politics in that nation, but spilled into a conversation about spiritual aspirations and how we get things sorted. And I thought, wow, I did hear God. And this was a door that he wanted to open and a conversation that's clearly got everywhere to go. So on this evening, people were, were gathering in our, in our front room main room in our house and there's a knock on the door and it's the this guy partner of one of our neighbors who's just come to carry on the conversation and immediately my reaction was how how do I get rid of him because I've got a room full of people so I, I tolerated his friendliness for as short a period as I could get away with and said I'm sorry I've got a lot of people here because my diary had long said that this was what I was doing this evening. What I should have done is I should have said, brilliant, I've got a room full of people who love spiritual stuff. Come and have a cup of tea, and let's sit down. Let's carry on the conversation together, and scrapped whatever I had planned to try and teach people about being responsive to God's work. (laughs) Are you with me? I think that's one of the reasons why other cultures see more of what God is doing. Now, Jesus said that he only did what he saw the Father doing. Uh, my observation is that we, 
Christian people rarely refuse to join in with what we see God's doing, what we see God doing, but we often fail to notice. We don't even see what he's doing because we're rushing on to the next thing. Uh, Laura's word about finding God, welcoming God into the whole of life, practically comes down to these sorts of things. Are we willing to let God have his way when we've got our days planned in our own minds? And some of you know Roger Cole, who's now the minister at Henley Baptist Church, and he prayed, having registered this issue, prayed for some years the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and made it a daily prayer. Dear God, today, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. Not, please would your will be done and it all just kind of work somehow. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that when God turns up, it cuts across what we're doing And our willingness to get on board with what he's doing, whether it's a person knocking on our front door or three strangers stood under a tree, or quite likely someone at work who at the end of the coffee break just wants to keep the conversation going and you're thinking, if I'm not back at my desk, what will people think? It's all kinds of things where God's doing something but we find ourselves wanting to rush on. There are a couple of things that we can do that can help build up the discipline of responding to what's going on, what God's doing around us. Actually, when we go prayer walking, I imagine that most of us have done some prayer walking at a time. It's a very simple activity, isn't it? After all, uh, uh, my best praying goes on when I'm walking. So if any of you have been in a prayer meeting with me, you'll observe that I often can't stand sitting down but need to get up and start walking around. uh, Praying and walking works really well for me. Um, Lots of us, though, do walk around the place where we live or walk around the place where we work and pray as we go. And partly that's just the discipline of making sure we make time to do that kind of praying But also, as we walk, in a sense, aimlessly, we're not trying to get somewhere. We're just wandering around and praying. It's a discipline that makes us more sensitive. We start to spot what God's doing as we wander around. The leadership guru, uh, John Maxwell from the States, has coined this phrase, walking the halls slowly. He's talking particularly to people working in big office blocks and to managers in that context and saying, uh, instead of just sitting behind your desk and having a whole schedule of meetings, you need to build time into your working life just to walk around the building aimlessly. Walk around the building slowly. Just chat to people. Just see what's going on. There's good wisdom in terms of how you connect with people when that happens. But some of us can do that in our workplaces. And uh, even this week, you could think about planning in an aimless wander. But a spiritually sensitive, aimless wander. And just become a little bit more aware of what God's doing and build up that sensitivity. So Abraham hurried, but not according to his existing plan. 
he hurried to join in with what God had brought across his screen that day. That's the first thing. Second thing is about Abraham's hospitality. There's much that could be said about food in the ancient world. Um, did anyone else like me, when we talked earlier about um, when God speaks, the mountains shake and crumble, did anyone else think about lunch at that point, or was it just me? <laughs> We've got a huge apple crumble from the apples in our garden planned for student lunch today. That's why I was thinking about it. I spent quite some time last night peeling the apples, and I'm afraid that I was reminded of it rather than the Lord's grandeur <laughs> at that point in our worship. I had disciplined myself. But Holy Spirit... Help me worship. Thank you for the crumble, Lord. Um, There's a lot that could be said about food. Uh, Food and eating meals together is a a context where bonds are forged between people, uh, where uh, where strangers are turned into friends. There's a lot that goes on. Now, in the ancient world, where there were no hotels, there were no inns, there were no travel lodges, clearly, Uh, If you were traveling, you were at the mercy of the local people to show you hospitality. And what went along with that was an expectation that if somebody was passing through, you would show them hospitality rather than leave them lying in the street or in the city square. So Abraham, some of what he did here was just what was expected. So people are passing by, you look after them, that's what you do. Uh, But what he did was more than that. He didn't delegate this task to any of his servants. He attended to them personally, which he needn't have done. Uh, But more than that, the food that he had prepared was, was more than was needed. That phrase, fine flour, we're we're used to all of the flour that we buy from a supermarket being fine flour. But in the ancient world, it was quite hard to acquire fine flour, and it wasn't what people ate most of the time. It specifically says later in the Old Testament where when the tabernacle was built and the temple, that the bread that was to be placed in that holy place had to be bread of the finest quality made with fine flour. And that's what Abraham thinks to provide for his guests, bread worthy of God. It would have been more suitable when three visitors come to kill a lamb or a goat or not a calf. I mean, it's going to take a while. I mean, it's clearly more than enough. And it's about providing them with the best. So again, Abraham didn't know that that one of these men was the Lord. At least there's no evidence in the passage that he knew may have begun to wonder, but when he first met them, he didn't know, and yet he still treated them with great honor. I wonder, when did you, here's a question, really practical question, when did you last feed someone from outside of your household? Really practical question. The New Testament has a command, two-word command at one point. It says, practice hospitality. There's something that happens when we generously give food to people. Relationships are changed. When, uh, a few years ago, I was volunteering for the Citizens Advice Bureau as an advisor and doing that in the Asian Cultural Center, I had a man come in, a Muslim man, who came in and was asking, I can't remember what his problem was, but whilst he was talking to me, he told me about his lifestyle. He said, you know, in Islam... 
if a stranger knocks on our door, we have to put them up for three nights and provide them with board and lodging for three nights. At the end of three nights, we are, we've discharged our duty of hospitality. But we have to do that. And this man spent his life touring devout Muslim homes. Three nights, 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 three nights. And lived well. Sometimes we see things in the way that other uh, people following other religions do. We think, you know what, that ought to provoke us to be more hospitable ourselves. If another, if, if the Muslim community's hospitality is so secure that you can live off it, um, I understand all the issues of being taken for a ride and, I mean, uh, Nonetheless, there's a heart thing here, isn't there? It's what is it that goes on in us at the point that someone knocks on the door or more likely these days sends a text telling us what their needs are? What's our heart response? Are we inclined to ask, how can I help? Or are we inclined to assume that someone else will do it? Practice hospitality. There's this great promise, isn't there, in Hebrews 13, 12. Well, maybe it's not quite a promise, but it's certainly an encouragement. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. That was Abraham's experience. He showed hospitality to strangers. Turned out that it was the Lord himself and a couple of angels with him. God turns up in these moments you know, if you're a member of the church here and you've not yet signed up to offer a student lunch, there's an immediate win there. It's not, if you don't know how to go about doing it, who's, is it, it's Laura, isn't it? Who, you stand up again and wave. Just, I'm just trying to, you know, here we go. Laura will really help you obey the scriptures. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, with the pattern of prayer that we have adopted as a church, which we call Breathe. I haven't got a leaflet to hand to wave at you, but there are some at the back. Bev has. Here we go. It's all right. I've got one here. My very spiritual wife. Uh, the pattern of prayer, praying around the meal times of the day, breakfast, lunch, and, and the evening meal, different kinds of prayer around the different meals of the day. It wasn't randomly chosen that this landed around meal times. Oh, there we go. Oh, that's on my PowerPoint slide. I did that. <sighs> and then forgot. And uh, there's something about involving God in our meal times, which is because there's room for other people around our meal tables. It reminds us that God meets with us in the context of community and in a context where friendships are being made. We've broken bread and shared wine here this morning. Jesus instituted that in the context of a meal. And whilst it's, a, it's absolutely the right thing for us to break bread and share wine here on Sunday mornings, it's so much better when we do it in the midst of a meal in a home. That was the original practice and something that I also need to commend. So Abraham hurried to attend to what was going on around him, wasn't just caught up in his own issues. Abraham was hospitable. And then in the context of that, the Lord uh, made a promise 
He promised that Sarah would have a baby within a year. Now, this promise at this point in the story is spoken primarily for Sarah's benefit. If you've read the previous chapters, you'll see that there's been an unfolding revelation to Abraham since chapter 12. In chapter 12, God's, uh, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, you'll be a father of many. The stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, that's the number of offspring that you'll have. He's already promised that to Abraham. But after a while, and having no children, Abraham began to say in his own prayers, God, my servant Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit everything. I mean, yet you've given me loads of stuff, uh, but maybe the way this promise is going to work out is through Eliezer, because I've I've got no children. In chapter 15, God says, ah, this this great nation, no, there's another bit you need to know, Abraham, it is going to come through a son of yours. And so that's the next bit of revelation that came. And uh, in the time that followed that, uh, Sarah gave her maidservant Hagar to Abraham as another wife because Sarah wasn't having children. Hagar conceived Ishmael. And for 13 years, 13 years, Abraham had every reason to believe that Ishmael was the son of promise. And then when Ishmael was 13 years old, God appears to Abraham again and says, no, the son of promise is going to be born through your wife, Sarah. It's interesting, in chapter 17, when Abraham hears that, his response is, what about Ishmael then? Ishmael's in his heart. He's 13 years He's seen Ishmael as a son of promise. And God says, well, you know, Ishmael's going to be a nation as well. Don't worry about that. But Isaac is the one who will be a blessing to many, many nations. But in all of that, there's no record of God appearing to Sarah. And now Sarah had had what we might call an interesting life. She was evidently very beautiful. So beautiful that she and Abraham lived in constant fear of her being abducted by another man to be his wife. Early on in their marriage, Abraham said to Sarah, everywhere we travel, can you please pretend not to be my wife? Because it's like it's such a given that other men will want to kidnap you and have you for themselves. It would be better if when they do that, they didn't think I was your husband and kill me in the process. So they're going to abduct you, love. <laughs> I'm powerless to stop them, you know, wandering nomad, opposed to king with armies. He'll, he'll get to abduct you. When that happens, could you just pretend I'm not married to you because then they won't feel the need to kill me? It's an interesting perspective on the quest for beauty, isn't it? <laughs> it's a price that came with it. And it's, this happened. In Egypt, it's happened already. She was there and Pharaoh took her into his harem. It's going to happen again in another couple of chapters' time, actually, with Abimelech. So she's beautiful, but suffered for it. She was also, well, she hadn't had children with 
Abraham. And she tried to solve that by providing Hagar. We don't know why Sarah was hiding in the tent. There's two possibilities. One might be the straightforward fear that here are some strangers, maybe she's about to be abducted. She can't let them see her face, otherwise, goodness me. They might whip her off and kill Abraham in the process. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that perhaps in the presence of the Lord, she'd already started menstruating and her cycle had started again because God had promised her a child. Actually, in the ancient world, the primary reason that women were asked to stay indoors was that reason. And so maybe it was because of that. We don't, we don't know. We don't know what was going on in her physically and emotionally at this time. But what happened when God spoke his promise was she laughed. Which probably seems the most unspiritual thing to do. It's not as bad as Abraham in the chapter before. When Abraham was told by God that Sarah would have a son, he fell over and laughed. I mean, at least she just laughed and didn't fall over. It's interesting. Abraham, the father of faith. In chapter 15, when God had said to Abraham, you'll have a son. It's not all going to go through Eliezer of Damascus. You are going to have a son. That is where it said that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, which becomes the great theme of Paul's theology of justification by faith in the New Testament. But when Abraham was told that Sarah would have a son, he fell over and laughed. It's interesting, isn't it? How we imagine we have to respond in order to get God's promised blessings. There's a little wordplay, by the way, in the last verse that we read. Sarah was afraid and lied and said, I did not laugh. But the Lord said, yes, you did laugh. Again, in some of your Bibles, if you turn back a chapter, you might see where the name Isaac is given, 17, chapter 17, verse 19, which the, the, the name Isaac means he laughs. As if a, a word play going on here. You'll call your son, he laughs. You have a bit of a laugh about it. And uh, in, when Sarah says, I didn't laugh, it's very close in its sound to saying, not Isaac, like no to the promise. And when God says, you did laugh, he's saying, you, Isaac. It's happening. There's a strength in the proclamation of God's promise that is not perturbed by our response. Lots of people ask, how can I get a miracle? What kind of faith do I need to have? Is there a special quality of Faith that brings down the power of God. I'd like to suggest that there's a better question than how do I get a miracle? The better question to ask is how do I get a promise? Of course, God has given us many great and precious promises in the scriptures. There is also something about his word coming alive to us as he 
speaks to us about what he intends to do in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 12, in the list of gifts of the Spirit, there's one there that is the gift of faith. And again, don't we all have faith that brings salvation? But there's another kind of faith, which is when God says he's going to do something, and a response comes up in us and we say, oh, yes, I know you are. I've heard you. I've heard you. I know you're going to do that. And it's a gift of faith to believe what God said. The first funeral I ever conducted properly was of Kath Sorrell. Kath was diagnosed with kidney cancer, which in itself needn't have been the end for her because kidney cancers, as I understand it, tend to remain in the kidney. You take the kidney out and uh, there's a cure. But in her case, the cancer had spread beyond her kidneys and then the doctors say, once kidney cancer spreads, it's very, what's the word? Aggressive, thank you. And there's nothing much they can do. Kath and her husband, Len, were, uh, I remember, first of all, going to see them with Mike Beaumont. Some of you have heard me say this story before. I was a young, younger pastor then and very grateful that Mike was with me. And he opened up the conversation by saying, look, Kath, this is a win-win situation. There are two possibilities here. Either Jesus is going to heal you and you're going to have a tremendous testimony or you're going to die and be with him in heaven. They're both wins. It's a win-win situation. But beyond that, Len and Kath began to read the stories of people experiencing miracles in the name of Jesus and tried to see what was it that was going on. Was there a special kind of faith? a special kind of prayer, if you said a certain pattern of words, if you went to a certain place, was there some, some thing, some technique that you could use? What they found was that there was only one common factor in all of the stories that they looked at. And it was that someone had heard something from God in a time of intimacy with him. That was the only thing that they found in all of those stories, that someone had spent some time with God and had heard something from him. And then out of that word spoken by God, all kinds of good things unfolded. Replace Abraham with another Old Testament named figure, Reuben. He's not really Reuben from the Old Testament, clearly. His name is Reuben. Reuben is the son of John and Nom Bilson, who used to be our student pastors here but are now planting a church in Paris. I just want to read to you uh, the story of what's recently been going on in their lives. Many of you will know that Nom has multiple sclerosis, and it's been getting worse. Uh, it, It comes in episodes, So she'll be much worse for a period, and then it will um, abate somewhat. But with successive episodes, it gets worse and worse. In mid-July, this is an email that I've just got from them. We've talked it through with them as well, but it's easier to read from the email to make sure I get it right. Nom was going into an episode, episode getting worse, in mid-July, and was struggling to walk very far. 
or to look after the kids, or in fact to do very much at all. We prayed, it didn't stop. So much so that as we prepared to go to Destiné, which is the, the network of churches that we have in France, their summer camp is called Destiné. As they prepared to go there, Nom decided to get a crutch and to use it for the first time. Once we got to the camp, though, things started to improve. Nom had the strength to participate in the camp and look after the kids. She could feel that people were praying for her here in the UK because they'd asked for that prayer and that was going on. But also people saw her walking around with a crutch. It's, it's a good, great way to get people to pray. If you're ever going to a church camp or something, it's clearly, she didn't mean it as a technique, but it clearly worked. On the Thursday evening of the camp, she was hauled up the front to be prayed for, and Jean Pionel, who leads our French network of churches, said to her afterwards, and somewhat hesitantly, because he didn't want to give her false hope, but he had a sense in the spirit that it had stopped. So Nom did begin to feel that the episode that she was in was stopping. She was getting progressively stronger and they were able to have a good family holiday. At one point in that holiday, Nom was reading her Bible, and Reuben, Reuben came out from the tent, completely unprompted, saying, Mummy, I just went into my bedroom and prayed to Jesus that he would take away your illness. He told me that he would tell you when he was going to make you better when we got back to Paris. Nom was very touched, not sure entirely what to make of that. We, this is John and Nom, they had assumed, or we had assumed, as they write, that she would just start on some new medication when they got back home after the summer, but she currently feels better than she has in two years and has rising hope that God has really done something this summer. We're still living with the results of previous episodes, some problems with balance and so on, but we're starting to dare to believe that God is going to stop the advancement of this illness. Please pray with us that God will continue a process of healing. Either way, something quite significant has happened this summer. In addition to the new physical freeness, freedom for Nom, we're both experiencing a new freedom from fears and insecurities that have been dogging us, so much so that Nom is delighted but slightly bewildered to be living with a husband who has relaxed a great deal. We're not sure what God is up to, but we're feeling full of fresh life and freedom. Thank you, Jesus. I just want to note that in that story, as in all the ones that Len and Kath found, there's a couple of people in there. Jean Pionel heard something from God, but also Reuben. There is something about the power of God coming to you through your five-year-old son, that does a lot to relax you from the feeling that you've got to make things happen. I'm sure that's part of how God's done the miracle internally in them, as well as begun to work in Nom's body physically. So as I said, let's ask the question, how do I get a promise from God? The answer is very simple. It's in his presence. It's in prayer. Um, we could hope, and it does sometimes happen, that you might come in here on a Sunday and someone, probably John Snelson, has a word for you and says, God says this. 
That's brilliant. It's really, really, really good. But we don't have to wait for that. And my experience of not John's prophesying, but of that kind of prophetic thing is that it, it brings about a measure of faith, but it needs to be received and owned. Um, when God speaks to us in the quiet place, to us personally, words of promise, it goes, it goes deeper still than that. And... Um, I'm going to pray and ask that we would have a spiritual week, ask that we'd spot what God's doing and ask that we'd hear his voice. Heavenly Father, thank you that once upon a time you came down and visited Abraham and Sarah. Thank you that the story is recorded for our benefit. Thank you that you took the initiative then and you made great promises. Thank you that you didn't rebuke Sarah harshly, but understood that she needed more grace. And I pray, Lord God, with this coming week, in all of the different places that you take us to, with this week, be a time when we sense you close to us. We see what you're doing. Father, help us too to make the time that we should just to sit with you, to turn the telly off or just not even to turn it on, to put the tablet to one side, to ignore Facebook, whatever it may be, and wait upon you. Just see what it is you want to do in us. Father God, we, we really don't want to spend all these Sundays talking about encounter with you, but miss it. I pray that as we gather next Sunday to hear about sustainable power, that we'd have our own testimonies to add in from this week. Yes, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.